if we haven't met yet, my name's Doug. Hi. I'm the young adult pastor here uh, at the table, and I'm really excited to just kind of jump into the material tonight. Uh, I had Alec play some walk-up music. We don't normally do that, but I thought it might be appropriate because um, if you've been with us uh, at any point during this study of Ephesians, you know that the book of Ephesians is really broken into kind of two main sections. The first half of it, we are saved by grace. Uh, The Christian belief is that you do not work your way towards a relationship with God. You don't work your way towards salvation. God loves you and he saves you. And so all of our working, all of our effort happens as a result of that salvation moment, that conversion moment, the moment God brings you into a relationship with Jesus. So we don't work towards the cross. We work from the cross. And in light of that, because we're saved by grace, the second half of the book, which is all application, is all about walking this way. And so I want to play that music just to remind us of the fact I wanted us all just humming that song in our head, walk this way, talk this way, because what we're going to talk about tonight is one of the uh, sub-aspects of how we walk as a believer, right? We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about the ways in which we walk as Christian believers. And so for this week, we're going to talk about one important sub-aspect of that, which is how we walk in our sexuality. That's right. We're talking about sex tonight. In fact... Uh, we had this big debate, what song should Doug walk up to? And one of the options was, let's talk about sex by Salt and Peppa. <laughs> and for obvious reasons, we thought that could be super creepy for Jason to just like be playing the son of God, like high and lifted up. And all of a sudden, here it comes, it's like, let's talk about sex, baby. Like, I know that Christians are now suddenly okay with talking about sex, but that might be a little too close for comfort. So we backed off of that one and did walk this way. But this week, uh, we're talking about sex and sexuality Next, uh, actually in two weeks, because remember there's no table next week, it's Thanksgiving. In two weeks, we're going to talk about uh, alcohol because we're young adults and so there's really only two things that we really need to think about in terms of Christianity, sex and alcohol, which oftentimes, sadly, go together, right, Uh, for many of us. So um, yeah, so this week, let's talk about sex, if you guys are okay with that. And here's what I want to do to set all this up, just so you guys know, right? Everything we're going to talk about here this evening about sexuality, it only applies to Christians. So I want to be very clear up front. Everything we're talking about is within the context of walking as a Christian believer. And so here's the thing. If you're not a Christ follower here today, and if you're not totally cool, glad you've chosen to gather and hang out with us for a little bit. But if you're not currently a Christ follower, nothing I'm saying applies to you, okay? Uh, And I I want to make sure I say that up front because oftentimes people in my role, when they start opening up the Bible and start talking about sexuality, it's like, hey, the Bible says this for Christians, and so we're going to hold everybody in the world accountable to this. And that puts Christians oftentimes in this disposition of being super judgmental, like, oh, okay, well, you're not a Christian, but you're having sex over here. Well, okay, well, you're a terrible person, da 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 right? And so I want to make that, that, um, that caveat up front. If you're not a believer here today, none of this applies to you, but... If you're thinking about following Jesus, what might be good is to understand that there is a sexual ethic within Christianity that Christians believe will uh, lead to human flourishing uh, and overall satisfaction in life. And so that's what we're going to talk about here today. If you are a Christian, uh, let me just say this. Um, I think it's very possible that you may be coming at this talk, uh, this particular talk at this particular time uh, on November 13th, 2018, uh, maybe from one of two common positions, either A, uh, you, you have a, a strong sexual 
experience past, right? You bring a lot of experience and sexuality to the table, pun intended, and um, you are trying to figure out how to reconcile that sexuality with Jesus. And so you're coming from that kind of perspective. And if that's you, welcome, glad you're here. I'm going to try to be as uh, helpful as possible in helping think through these issues. Or maybe you're on the other side where you have uh, lots of experience with Christianity and no experience with sexuality, uh, and we'll talk about that. And for the first time, maybe you're thinking about bringing those two together, and you're like, what? And so I want to similarly be very um, encouraging and responsible with that topic. And so we're going to try to talk about both these things, and we're going to try not to be weird about it, because oftentimes Christians can be weird about this stuff. Again, it's either we don't talk about it, or we talk about it way too much and inappropriately. I'm going to try to just pick a median way and just kind of go through there uh, and help us understand what the Bible says about sexuality. And, and here's the thing. Um, I really believe that because God made us as sexual beings, sexuality is part of our humanity, that not talking about it is, in effect, missing out on a whole opportunity for the renewal process to have its effect in us, to, that there's, there's something about Christ-likeness and righteousness to be gained with an honest talk about sexuality and how that works in our lives. And so if you guys are okay with that here today, um, I want to jump in uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles or your phone apps, you can open to Ephesians chapter 5. And while you guys are kind of opening up to that, um, as you're opening, it's totally cool. Open it up, swipe open, what all those things. Uh, Let me pray for us that God would make us teachable. Jesus, um, I would just pray here today that you would help us to understand the connection between sexuality and spiritual growth. And for those of us who bring a lot of baggage to the table, would you just minister to us and bring us peace and lessen the anxiety in our hearts? Um, Those of us who don't have a lot of experience in that world, would you just give us a very clear vision without it becoming creepy or weird or inappropriate? And for everywhere in between, maybe there's some people who aren't believers who are here today, would you just give them a clear picture of the Christian vision of sexual ethics for your glory, for our good, and for the good of Orlando, the city that we love? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read 14 verses here, and then I'm going to talk about it for a while, so just stay with me here, all right? Therefore, Paul writes, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
Verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is a lot of verses, and I can't cover the intricacies of all 14 verses, but I think at a 30,000-foot view, a couple of things stand out. And so the way I want to go about processing through this passage with all of us here today is just to ask this question right here. How do I subject my sexuality to the renewal process? How do I subject my sexuality to the renewal process? And I want us to remember together what we talked about last week. If you weren't here, that's okay. We basically talked about what renewal is and how uh, the idea of renewal works and functions within the Christian life. And I believe we have a graphic that Alyssa can throw on the screen here. Uh, But it's this graphic here. Uh, And if you remember, it's Venn diagram crossing over. And just to recap it, uh, if you've been following Jesus or want to follow Jesus, you know that the the basic question that we ask as, as Christian believers is, how in the heck do I hear from God? Right? I mean... How in the world do I hear what he's telling me and then go do it, right? Because Jesus doesn't just want hearers of truth. He wants people who actually put truth into practice. And so there sets up this thing in the Christian life where we have hearing truth and we have doing truth. And we're trying to connect the dots between those two, build a bridge between it such that when we hear truth, we then are able to do it. And I mentioned my friends in academia who oftentimes kind of take, to some extent, a condescending approach where they go, well, if you're smart enough, you'll just hear truth and you'll automatically know how to do it. And I think most of us in this room who are all very smart people uh, would point out that in experience, it's not that simple. There seems to be this middle thing going on here that's helping connect us to, to, from hearing truth and to doing truth. And I argued last week, or rather Paul argued last week, that that thing that's connecting hearing truth And doing truth is called renewal. And renewal works this way. It consists of us first putting off some things or taking off some things. Um, There's some bad ways of thinking and some bad ways of feeling as we're processing through data and experiences that we've got to put off. We've got to make sure they, they are not part of our system. Similarly, there's some things we need to put on. There's some truth we need to adopt and add into our brains and add into our feelings. And this is the kind of stuff that we need to spend our time meditating upon. And the thing that links those two together, if you remember from last week, is this process called renewal. It's when our mind and our hearts, as we process with our mind and process with our hearts, as Jesus becomes the center of that, uh, this way of thinking with our mind and with our heart actually is what links putting off and putting on together, right, to create this renewal process. As As we come to realize what is true and we know what we used to believe, we can see a gap in between those things. And so it's almost like we've been standing over here believing this wrong thing, and we go, oh, I need to walk over here and stand with Jesus. Jesus, I'm with you. I agree with you on this particular position. My heart, my disposition is turned towards you on this thing. I'm going to abandon that wrong way of thinking. I'm going to put it off. Instead, I'm going to put on you. And that whole process there, that thing at the core of this is called renewal. And so what we looked at last week, as Paul mentioned, there were kind of five case studies of uh, wrong ways that Christians think about, think, think about things, such as anger and gossip and some of these things, and then the right practices that we should be putting on, okay? So that's a summary of everything Paul has just said in chapter 4. He's now turning his attention to chapter 5, and really what he's dealing with at its core is sexuality, and he's given us a long-form explanation of how we should put off some things about sexuality, and how we should think about it appropriately, and what we should put on about sexuality. 
And so again, the whole of what I want to talk about today is how do we, as Christian believers, how do Christians subject their sexuality to this process of renewal? What does that look like practically? How would things be different if I thought about sexuality as Jesus thinks about sexuality and if I thought about it in my own life, in my own experiences, in my own relationships? That's the question I'll ask today. And so let's jump in and see what I think Paul is telling us on that. If you have a bulletin, you can fill in some blanks here and take some notes, which I recommend. Because there's a little bit of material here we want to get through. So a couple of things. I want to I say don't do two things. Instead, do one thing. That's going to be my approach to this. And I think this is what Paul's approach is. First, what I think he says is don't imitate the world's view of sexuality. In verse 1, he says, therefore, in summing up chapter 4, he says, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, if we're going to look to a model to imitate, it should be God. Meaning, it shouldn't be the world. Remember in chapter 4, he's just said this. Don't walk as Gentiles as the world does. Don't generally subject yourself and your worldview to kind of a de facto cultural understanding of things that's always changing. So we should not be people who imitate the world. Another way to think about this is, When it comes to sexuality, don't identify with the world's understanding of sexuality. And what do I mean by this? In general, the world that Paul would have been speaking to, the worldview, uh, the pagan Greco-Roman worldview at the time, is what's known as just an unrestrained sexuality, or maybe just an open sexuality. The way that uh, Greco-Romans tended to think about human sexuality was defined in terms of passive and active sexuality, okay? So... Um, if you were just a person about town in the Orlando equivalent of a Greco-Roman society and you just saw a person, the kind of conversation you would have is like, you want to? And if they're like, yeah, I want to. You're like, you want to? Okay, cool. And, and there was no kind of other categorical description, meaning one of the things that Greco-Roman people did not differentiate between is age. And so oftentimes adults are sleeping with children and Um, there's a lot of other derivations of that. Uh, But really, the question that was asked in any kind of one of these sexual encounters was, was it active, meaning both people wanted to consent to this. It didn't matter age, it didn't matter anything else. And so the the contrast to that was called passive sexuality. And passive sexuality is you would say, do you want to? And the other person was like, no. And you're like, too bad. And then sex happens, right? We would call this rape today or uh, sexual assault. But these are the only definitions It's really a limitedly restrained sexuality. And Paul is saying, don't live with an unrestrained sexuality. Uh, One of the um, revolutionary ideas in Christianity that actually gets inherited from Judaism is this idea. It's it's a really radical idea. There are five early uh, political economies that get established in kind of that that, um, ancient Near Eastern worldview. And four of them define sexuality in terms of passive or active sexuality. It's only the Jews who say, you know what? We might want to restrict human sexuality for some, like just kind of focus it a little bit here. And so the the book of Leviticus and portions of it says, you should restrict human sexuality to these kind of things. And typically what it says, you should restrict uh, human, human sexuality between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship because that seems to be a stable institutional kind of deal that will help you focus sexuality. Sexuality is like a laser, and you just really need to focus it. Otherwise, you'll blind everybody, right? You guys ever have those, um, you, might, you may be too uh, young for this. I don't know. See, there may be some older people. I don't know how to ask this question. I'm just going to ask this question. 
So when I was growing up, this is where I cover myself, um, we didn't have like fancy screens and technology. We had laser discs and we had like, you know, maps on a wall. And so the teacher had this clicker pen that had like a red laser thing in it. You guys, some of you know what I'm talking about. And so they would, they would put it on the board and they would circle something like this and they would be like, okay, notice this thing on the graphic. And then occasionally a teacher would be pressing the button and would turn towards the crowd and everybody would be like, oh my gosh, like this. And there's the myth that was going around that if that red laser, you know, went across your eye, you would be blind. Like it's just, if it touches you at any point near your eye, you're blind forever, right? And so everyone's afraid of this unfocused laser that's just kind of spinning around, right? Well, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't be like the world. The world is just this unfocused laser that's going to blind everybody. Uh, The way you should think about sexuality inherited from Jewish categories is this very focused, tightly understood, um, pointed laser that goes in one direction for optimal usage. So don't be imitators of the world. That's the first thing you shouldn't do. Now, once I say that, or once Paul says that, I think he has in mind, um, at least, some of the fears we have. Uh, Because if you've grown up in church or in Christian subculture, you've kind of been given these two options. It's like, when it comes to sex, I can either be like, the world, or I can be like cultural Christianity. And so the second thing I want to tell you is don't be like cultural Christianity, okay? And let me be very clear on what cultural Christianity is. Um, I was talking with my boy Isaac, who runs the table. Shout out to Isaac. Uh, And he mentioned this great verse. So hat tip to Isaac. Everything I'm about to tell you is basically Isaac's idea. I want to make sure not to plagiarize this idea. I'm giving him all praise and glory. All praise and glory to you, Isaac Trevino. Okay. So here's the verse. It's Proverbs 122, and it says this. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And basically what the writer of Proverbs is saying here is there's these three kinds of people, in this case, who exist in kind of a cultural Judaism, in our case, that kind of exist in cultural Christianity. And I'm just curious if you've been around church at all, maybe you've heard one of these sex talks from one of these positions, right? Uh, the first one is the, the naive, the naive, otherwise the simple ones. And uh, this aspect, the na- naive in Christian culture, the naive people, these are the people who bury their heads in the sands about controversial issues. You may know this. So, um, you know, this would be a, a situation where, like, you go to your student pastor, or you go to your college pastor, you just go to one of your pastors at your church, and you're like, hey, I'm a new Christian. I really want to know what the Bible says about sex. And as soon as you, you articulate the X in sex, he's like, oh, my gosh, and he runs, right? He's like, oh, i got to get out of here, right? Like, oh. And, and then he's, like, calling the deacon on the phone as he's leaving. He's like, hey, yeah, that, that guy, Doug, uh, he mentioned the S word. And they're like, the four-letter one? He's like, no, I'd be okay with that. It's S-E-X. That's the one. I'd be bad. Like, okay, so like get the men in black in. And all of a sudden, all the deacons come in in the black, you know, tucks in with their things. And they're like, look at us. And they do the, and they, you forget everything. And they erase your memory, right? Just, right? There's those kind of people in cultural Christianity. You know, you go to coffee with someone who you think is like a really respected Christian. And you're like, hey, what's the Bible say about sex? And they get really uncomfortable. They're like, <laughs> they just laugh really uncomfortably like, so we're going to talk about uh, the old birds and the bees. Uh, and like, you're so uncomfortable from how uncomfortable they are. You're like, okay, I've learned. Never bring this up, ever. Here's the problem with that approach, where you just bury your head in the sand about these cultural issues. Okay? Um, if there's no sexuality discussed or thought about, there's no opportunity for renewal in sexuality. So burying our head in the sands doesn't work. 
We have to admit that sexuality is a part of us, and therefore, it's something that needs to be taken before Jesus so he can teach us on this. It's not something he wanted us just to, uh, you know, bear, you know, cut out of our, our, our lives. Uh, I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I was 16, 17 or whatever, and I started to have this conversation with my youth pastor. My youth pastor was a baller. Let me just tell you that. He was, his name was Doug, so I learned something about pastors named Doug. They're awesome. Anyway, um, <laughs> So his name was Doug, too, and I went to him, and I was like, Doug, like, what's the Bible say about sex? And he, he, he kind of gave a good answer, and I just kind of, I was at that point, I was like, you know, I'm so frustrated sexually, like, I don't know what I should do. I just, you know, I'm 17, I've got hormones raging, and I'm just like, oh, I don't know what to do with all this. And I, I remember some of the guys in my little discipleship group, we, they articulated this. They said, I wish God would just take sexuality away from me. Have you ever thought about that before? Where you're like in the midst of maybe like a, an epic blunder from the night before and you're like, oh God, I just wish God would just take this away from me. Like guys have this sometimes when, you know, guys do guy things and they're just like, oh man, I just wish God would take my sexuality away from me. Or girls after that one breakup, you're just like, men are pigs. Just, <laughs> I'm done, Jesus. I'm just dating Jesus from this point forward. Men are pigs, take away sexuality. Which on that note, I think I need to just, girls, listen. Don't, don't, don't date Jesus. And here's why. Because at some point, a guy is going to come along and you're going to want to date him. And how do you break up with Jesus, right? Like, what line do you use? It's not you, it's me. Right? I'm just putting you in the friend zone, Jesus. This doesn't work. Think it through. Sorry. Anyway. So, Here's the thing, right? We, we say that, Jesus, I wish you would just take away my sexuality, right? Just take it away. Well, my youth pastor, when I said this, he goes, no, 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 you don't, you don't want God to take away your sexuality. If it's something he's given you, you want him to redeem it. So you got to take that before him and pray about it and let him do the work in you. So we can't be naive, can't bury our heads in the sand. The second way cultural Christianity operates is they just operate foolishly. And the foolish approach is, is kind of one where it says this, um, I don't have to renew what I don't think or talk about. So really, it's, it's, and I hate to use this term, but it's kind of a bifurcated way of thinking. It's just like, I know that Christianity speaks to this, but I'm just not going to think about it. It's not burying your head in the sand because typically people who are foolish, they're like, I'm going to keep having sex. I'm going to keep doing whatever I do, and I'm just going to keep it like really far apart from Christianity. And so this is, if you were ever in church and you heard about this, you would come in and say, um, you know, hey, uh, you know, I have this like sexual part of my life and I'm not sure. And people are like, listen, I, everyone has. It's almost like it's, t- it's talking about sex in this approach is like talking about poop in this approach, right? I'm a, I'm a dad. I have kids who poop and like people come over sometimes. I'm like, my kids poop. I'm sorry, right? But that's the whole approach. You're like, listen, look, listen, I know you have sex. I know you do. Let's just not talk about it. Like, let's just skip topics you just keep doing whatever. I don't need to know about it. You're just like, la, 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 la. You're good. Okay, right over here, right? It's not naive. You're still being involved in it, but you just don't ever consider how Jesus wants to be at the center of that, right? So that's the, the foolish approach. And the final one is the cynical approach, the, the cynical approach. The cynical approach says this. Yeah, I know Jesus says something about sexuality, but I don't care. I'm going to keep having sex I know that, that sin is fun. The Bible says sin is fun for a short period of time. 
And so I've done the economics of it. I can actually maximize my pleasure of this sin as it's, it's being um, held victim to the law of diminishing marginal utility. And once it crosses the zero threshold, then maybe I'll go talk to Jesus about it. But let's see if I can optimize that fun, sinful period because I know that on the other side of that, grace is there to cover me, right? And so you're just relying on this idea of grace to come in. Uh, it's something that, that is like uh, fire insurance on the other side. You're like, yeah, Lord, I know I shouldn't have been having sex with all those people, but grace, right? And here's the thing I want to tell you if you're cynical. That's God's grace. It is. If you are a Christian who's following him, guess what? God lavishly loves you, and it does, there's nothing you could ever do to violate that. And there's nothing you could ever do to earn more of that. That's what grace means. He's going to give it to you. But here's the problem. If you're thinking in this way, thinking I can live however I want to live, and then grace will be there for me on the other side, you might be a Christian. Or you might not be a Christian. And the evidence that you might not be a Christian is because you pervert grace. And Paul says, don't pervert grace, you know, don't pervert and, and, and continue operating in sin that grace may abound. So the cynical approach, I get it, I understand it, but your cynicism might be an indication that you may not have really understood this salvation thing in the first place. So I just want to give that caveat out there. Okay, so those are three approaches I don't think work. I don't think, the, or four, I don't think the world's way works, which is just unrestrained sexuality. I don't think burying your head in the sand works. I don't think just being foolish about it and not thinking about it works. And I don't think being a cynic works. Why? Because I think there's a better way out there. And Paul thinks there's a better way out there. And so what I want to do is talk to you about the, the way I do think that works. And that's what uh, Paul mentions, which is we're to imitate the pattern of God, especially in our sexuality. Paul uses chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 to say imitate God and then spends a lot of time talking about sex. And everything he's talking about uh, there with sex, or with sex and covetousness and coarse joking, all that stuff, it's all related to sex. And so I want to try to give you my uh, approach, my biblically washed approach, but still Doug's approach to what it might look like to submit our sexuality to the renewal process, okay? So what I'm about to tell you is, is a lot of Doug with a little bit of Bible. Please don't take anything, I'm, the advice I'm about to give you is anything more than my attempt to try to be helpful with what this might look like. You guys okay with that? You up for that? You know what I'm saying? Don't say this is holy and inspired what's about to transforth. Don't live your life by it like, like it's truth. It's just my understanding and application of truth. Okay, so the, the imitating the pattern of God, um, let's take it through what we used last week, which is, sexuality and renewal. So remember, there's a calloused idea, and then there's a renewal idea, and then there's a practice that uh, I want us to put on. So let's talk about that. What's the calloused idea? So here's the way I would approach this. Okay, when it comes to sexuality, what's the wrong thinking about sexuality uh, as it relates to truth? And here's the wrong idea. The idea is self-gratification is the driving core of sexuality. The calloused idea, the idea that we need to put off is the idea that self-gratification is the driving core of sexuality. What drives largely a, a, a worldly, a broadly pan-cultural view of sexuality is that the goal of sexuality, the, the driving force behind it, is your own self-gratification. And nowhere is this better understood than the apps Tinder or, you know, Bumby or, is it Bumby? Bumble? What is it? Oh, I know all you guys use that. Yep, okay, that was a trick. <laughs> just kidding, I'm just messing. So, um, so Bumble and Twitter, or uh, um, uh, Tinder. Sorry, I use Twitter a lot, but yeah. Um, 
so think about this. Basically what this app suggests is I'm a human being who has sexual needs and you're a human being who has sexual needs. So this is now just an exchange of goods and services. So I'm gonna gratify myself using your body and you're gonna gratify yourself using my body and when we're done, we're done. But what drives that meetup process is individualized self-gratification that's actually functioning economically in something called a convenience of needs. We are both in the same area with the same needs. Let's be convenient and get together. That's the extent of our relationship. And so what drives the worldview's understanding of sex is you're always filtering and asking the question, how can I gratify my own needs? And what's dangerous about this idea, especially for Christian marriage, is that there are a lot of men and women who enter Christian marriage with this view of sex. And so you hear all these horror stories about husbands and wives who assault each other on their honeymoons because they haven't ever switched over to a better understanding of sexuality. And they go on like, oh, I'm going to get mine now. I'm married. God said I can. Right? These, <laughs> these poor husbands come out of the, the room in their honeymoon. You can just imagine it. They've taken off the tux. They've gotten all the glitter out of their hair. And then their wives just jump them. And you're like, ah! Like it's just one of those things. Or maybe it happens the other way. I don't know. Anyway, but here's the thing. It, it can't be about self-gratification. It's got to be something better. And so here's the, uh, the renewal idea, and there's two of them I want us to consider. Number one, I want us to consider that God defines love and sexuality as an expression of love as, um, as self-sacrifice. Um, God defines love and sexuality as an expression of love as self-sacrifice. Not self-gratification, self-sacrifice. Listen to, what, listen to all the times <laughs> Paul talks about this. Chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God's beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So we're two verses into chapter 5. He's already established that the kind of love that God thinks about is self-sacrificing love. It's not self-gratifying. And then he moves right into this, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. And in other words, sex and covetousness, which is kind of, Paul's language for the visible and invisible. Sexual immorality are visible sexual sins that we do. Covetousness is invisible, internal. It's, think about lust, right? So the sexual behavior and the lust for self-gratification that motivates that. These things are not to be mentioned among saints. Why? Because saints are the kind of people that practice God's kind of love, which is self-sacrificing. And so the idea we've got to step into is uh, the kind of love we practice, especially sexual love, is self-sacrificing. The second thing, or idea I want us to consider like that is, so one is in the positive, hey, what if we approached love as self-sacrifice? The other's in the negative, and it's found in a Song of Solomon, um, chapter 8, I think verse 4 here. Uh, and it's going to be on the screen. Uh, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases and Solomon says this over and over again. If you read this book, he's like, listen, listen, I charge you by the gazelles of Jerusalem. Do not stir or awaken love until it so desires. In other words, don't, don't shake it up, right? Don't, don't get it ready. Don't, don't push the buttons. Don't, to quote Ray Romano, don't activate the launch sequence, right? Don't do any of that until it's the season, um, until it's ready. And so the, the thing to consider here, the other idea is consider how I may prevent arousal or awakening of sexual love before the right season of expression. I need to consider how I may prevent arousal or awakening of sexual love before the right 
season of expression. And so, again, just thinking about this, when I was in, when I was in college, my college pastor got this can of Dr. Pepper. Um, I don't know if you know what Dr. Pepper is unless you're from Texas, right? Do we know what Dr. Pepper is here? Okay, cool. I, I don't know. Uh, we got a can of soda. How about that? And he shook it up, right? And then he went click like this. And everybody in the front row went, ah, like this. Like one of those things. And he said, this is y'all sexuality. And this is what we do, right? We, we look for ways to kind of stir it up and feel good and then kind of try to you know, put it back down and stir it up and feel good and put it back down. And I want to walk through in a second a couple of case studies where I demonstrate that this is what we do. So just know, if you're like, that's not me, just wait. I'm going to show you ways it's us. So the two ideas to consider, what can we do to prevent awakening or arousing love before it's ready? And, and the other one, the positive, consider uh, what it would look like for us to think about love, especially sexual love, as self-sacrificing. Okay, so here's the believing action. The believing action is, in what ways can I practice self-sacrifice and thankfulness in my sexuality? In what ways can I practice self-sacrifice and thankfulness in my sexuality? Paul says this. He says, flee sexual immorality and instead practice thankfulness. Instead, practice thankfulness. In other words, we should be the kind of people who are regularly thinking about um, things that we could be thankful for. And so... The way that you could think about this, um, thinking self-sacrifice and thinking about thankfulness, is really, you can, you can ask these two diagnostic questions wherever you go when you're thinking about these things, right? And here are the two questions I want to give us, and then we're going to walk through a number of case studies, and then we'll be done. So here we go. Question number one, will this action or attitude awaken a desire to self-gratify? Will this action or attitude awaken a desire to self-gratify? Number two, am I able to pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God with this action or attitude? Right, straight from the text, those two diagnostic questions. Is this going to arouse or awaken me? Number two, can I pray a prayer of thankfulness to God in the midst of this moment? And just with those two things, let's run through a number of scenarios and just see how this works, right? We're just going to do a social experiment here today. So uh, just in your own mind, I want you to just tell yourself this doesn't have to be awkward. Okay? You don't have to say it out loud, but just be cool with one another. And no ribbing one another, no looking awkwardly, no taking Instagram photos and then tagging people in it and be like, that guy's a sinner. Don't, just be cool as we talk about this stuff. So here we go. So let's walk through a number of scenarios here. And we're going to use these two questions as a process just to think through the practicals of renewal here. And the scenarios are going to be scenarios by yourself, scenarios with another person, and scenarios in marriage. And we'll just kind of walk through those. First, scenarios by yourself. So I think one of the ways we need to think through our sexuality and the renewal process is in purposeless flirting, in purposeless flirting, okay? So let me set this up. Now, I'm not saying all of you guys do this, but um, I'm saying some of you do this, and probably, probably you're a flirt if you're someone who's pretty socially healthy, Right, because flirting is, is oftentimes a natural extension of just social awareness and social IQ. J- just to give you guys just a, a, a just a pure caveat, my my daughter who's six is pretty socially intelligent, and she already knows how to flirt. Although she doesn't have anything behind it, she just knows how to like bat her eyes and get people to come over and talk to her and all that stuff. My son likewise is pretty socially aware, and he, we're learning even at three years old. He knows how to do this. We were at this wedding last week, 
and there's a dance room in the middle, like a, a dance floor in the middle of the room, sorry. And we sat down and we're talking to all these people. It was a wedding for optometrists, so you know it was a party, right? Anyway, and so we're at this table of optometrists, and they're like, yeah, and then I went here for optometry school, and I really like this test, and whatever. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, anyway, and I look over at Nellie, I'm like, where are our kids? She goes, they're on the dance floor. And I look over, and it's all kids on the dance floor. And the first thing I th- thought was, we're Baptists, stop. Like, just kidding, I didn't say that. Um, only the Baptists in here got that joke. Everybody else was like, what? Baptists don't dance? Yeah. All the Brazilian Baptists were like, we dance. Um, so, uh, so my kids are on the dance floor, and I see my son. He's just like doing this move here. And I'm like, oh, like what's happening? He's so white. I don't know what's happening. And all of a sudden, he lifts up his shirt to show his stomach, and he's just doing this thing right here. And he's walking up to people, and he's like, boom, and hitting them with it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, my son. What a and so then he falls down on the ground. And I'm like, oh, no, what happened? And I'm going, Natalie, what's going on? She goes, no, just watch this. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, just watch. So now we're like Jane Goodall, and these are the apes. And we're like, hmm, very interesting. Like, the male one has fallen on the ground. Uh, and all these girls rush over to him. And they're like, are you okay? And he's like, I need help up. And they're like, okay. And I was like, dang, my son has game of three. Oh, no, I'm in trouble. Oh. Anyway, so... So, listen, I think flirting is, a, is an extension of just social health, but, but here's the thing I want to dial into. Is there purposeless flirting that we enter into? And what I'm talking about is you're a girl, and you just, you know, you just watch you know, a movie, and so you're feeling kind of lonely or whatever, and you see a guy at the table, and you're like, I'm going to go talk to him. I'm going to bat my eyes, whatever. You have no intention of ever having a dating relationship with him. You're just trying to see if you can get him to bat his eyes back at you, and once he does, you're like, okay, and you leave, right? Right, those, those kind of purposeless flirting, you have no intention of any kind of romance. There's no curiosity to see where this might go. You're just trying to get all the attention on you or the guys the same way. So let's ask the two questions. Will purposeless flirting awaken a desire to self-gratify? Now, some of you may go, well, not in me, but what happens to the person you're talking to, right? Will it start to stir them up? Will it shake the pot a little bit? You got to think about your brother, your sister in Christ, and what that may do to them. It may be innocent and harmful, harmless to you, but it may be harmful to them. So, yeah. Number two, am I able to pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God with this action or attitude? All right, well, let's think this through. You're like, okay, God, I'm feeling real lonely right now. And there's that guy over there. He's average looking. (laughs) You know, I'm a nine. He's a four at best, but here we go, right? (laughs) Thank you, Jesus, that I'm going to go flirt with this four. Here I go, right? (laughs) And you, right? Can you pray a prayer of thankfulness in your heart in that action? If the answer is no to either one of those, don't do it. Put it off. Stop that practice. This is an opportunity for you to go, ooh, Jesus, what I'm about to participate in is not righteous. And so I'm going to come over here with you and just say, you're enough, you're sovereign, I'm going to rest in you, and whatever's going on in me, you have enough to fix it, right? So there's purposeless flirting. All right, let's look at another one. With external images, with external images, and here they are, porn, sexting, social media, where you eat dinner. In other words, you're like, you know what? I need some wings. I'm going to Hooters, right? <laughs> Any place where you're like, or, you know, the, the, the female, this is not just men, right? 
Uh, I have a friend uh, who worked at like this really nice resort thing, and he was like a pool boy. And I would be like, oh, cool, what's it like being a, he was a cabana boy is what they called him. He's a cabana boy. I was like, what's it like being a cabana boy? He goes, well, it's, it's basically like wearing all white uh, shorts while uh, 40-year-old women oogle me. I was like, okay. I was like, do you get tips? He's like, yes, I get tips. And I was like, okay. And so one of those situations also, also happens. So where you eat dinner, and then the last one is Hallmark Lifetime rom-coms, right? So think about any of these things. Uh, and I'll just take, take one for an example. We'll, we'll take the one I think it's maybe hard. Social media, okay? You get on social media, and you go, oh, like you're scrolling through, and you're like, man, sh- she looks good. Well, let, me, let me just zoom in to see what she's wearing, right? That's the thing. Oh, uh, is that a blue top? Okay, cool, all right, right? Or you're zooming up, you're like, oh, he's cool, so there's a beach pic. Oh, man, does, does, he have, does he have sand on his chest area? Let me zoom in, right, just to look at that, right? And we get in this habit of seeing people, and it moves from just observing to oogling, and then those images are in our brains, and later on, we're in the darkness by ourselves, and we're feeling a little lonely. Maybe those images are there from some things that are going on in our lives, and we may utilize those images in some inappropriate ways sexually, right? You guys, I'm trying to be as coy as possible in what I'm talking about, which I'll get that I'm talking about masturbation, right? Okay. (laughs) So listen, external images. Listen, there's nothing naive. There's nothing simple. There's nothing that's just, oh, it's just a little thing. Listen, if any of these things happen, there's two questions we can ask, right? Number one, will this action or attitude awaken a desire to self-gratify? I know I'm feeling lonely, and Hallmark's got that Christmas thing going on. Like, is watching that going to start to shake things up? Uh, Is where I'm going to dinner and my dinner selections going to lead me to oogle a little bit? Obviously with porn and with sexting. Is this thing, is this thing I'm about to send to this person going to arouse or awaken any desires? Number two, am I able to pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God with external image things, Right? Again, it's a great thing. Hey, if I'm looking at porn, right? And listen, some of y'all in here have a background with porn. Guys, girls, it doesn't matter. But as, as you're clicking or as you're swiping or as you're, you, you know, searching, just stop and go, okay, can I just go, God, thank you for porn. Thank you that this woman here who is a mother and a daughter and a sister who is posing in that way Thank you for her life because obviously she has lots of opportunities as a career path. And clearly drugs are not influencing the way she's doing this right now. And clearly there's no other systemic problems or a patriarchal whatever impressing on her to be in this position now. Thank you for that. I'm going to self-gratify to this later on. Thank you. Right? If you can't pray that prayer, and by the way, from the awkwardness of how I phrase that, you should know you can't pray that prayer. Right? If you can't pray the prayer, listen, cut it out, put it off. Come over here with Jesus and go, Jesus, I was kind of walking over here. And I went, mm, nope, in the diagnostics, it didn't work. I'm putting this off. I'm standing with you. I'm going to practice thankfulness. I'm going to practice self-sacrifice. It does not do me any good to do this, even though I want it to. So I'm going to sacrifice my own desires of loneliness right here with you, right? That's external images. All right. So those are things by yourself. Let's talk about with another person. Because the first one just assumes maybe you're in a single season. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're divorced. You're kind of pursuing this thing. Maybe you're not quite with that person yet, but you're trying to get there. And all those things are good things. But let's say you finally find yourself with another person. Okay? And obviously this other person is not your spouse. It's just another person. Or maybe you're married 
but there's another person at work and you find yourself around them a lot and there's that kind of thing. So think about these two sub-aspects. Are you in close physical contact or rather think about being in close physical contact? And typically what happens here, especially if you're dating, uh, early on you have the where's the boundary conversation. And if you haven't had that and you're dating, can I encourage you to have that conversation? Just physically, like as things start to touch, right? Like, what's the arrangement? Like, what's the boundaries? Like, for some people, the palm hand-holding is just like, oh, this is too much. This is not holy by. I got to go, right? That's some people. Some people are like, we're kicking this up a notch. Interlocking digits. Yeah, we can do that, right? There's freedom in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, right? Uh, like, some of you, you get into, like, the hugging, but it's the, it's the, like, seventh grade Christian school dance hug where you're like this, right? Like, like body moves away from each other when you hug, right? Some of you move from that, you're like, we're advanced, side hug, right? And then there's like the close side hug, and then they're sitting down on a couch while you're side hugging, right? You always know that the next thing is like, we should just lay down, right? And then you start laying down, maybe that's where problems happen. But again, however you think about physical contact, if it's kissing where you're like, oh, we're Latin Americans, so we can kiss, right? So you do the side kiss. Yeah, you guys know what that is. By the way, Um, I'm not saying uh, that's appropriate. I am saying I do know people who that's been their boss move, right? Like, well, you know, I was a missionary kid in Latin America, so we can just kiss and that's fine. It doesn't do anything, right? So however you think about physical contact, again, ask these questions. Will this action, interlocking hands, hugging, sitting on the couch, hugging, kissing, right? Will this uh, close physical contact awaken a deep desire to self-gratify? Number two, am I able to pray a prayer of thanksgiving in God with this action or attitude? As you guys are on the couch and you're like, it feels like the Titanic, it's going down, it's going down, right? As that's happening, you got to ask, hey, can you stop right there in that moment going, Jesus, we're not yet horizontal, but we're 45 degrees. Thank you for this opportunity to grow closer to my sister in Christ, right? If you can't have that prayer in that moment, listen, put it off. Come over here with Jesus, Jesus, whatever. Look, let let me just tell you this. The thing that Natalie and I struggled with most when we were dating and engaged was the couch situation. Because I remember, like, and you guys know the story. I told Natalie I wasn't going to kiss her. And then my roommates in my life group gave me permission to kiss her. And I was like, yes, right? And, you know, we were palm interlocking, hugging on the couch. And then we started to have the conversation about, okay, can we lay down and snuggle on the couch or whatever? And that, I'm telling you, like, for me, and it's still true with my wife. If I'm hugging my wife and I start to lay down, like everything's happening, right? All the bells and whistles, the fu- like we live near Disney. And so we hear fireworks at night because we're near the Magic Kingdom. It doesn't matter what time it is. If I start to lay down on the couch with my wife, fireworks are going off somewhere, right? It's just, that's what it does for me. So when we were dating, if that ever happened, when we got 15 degrees, it would always like, she can tell you this. It would always be like this, like, cool, this, this show's cool. I got to go, right? And I would just like, like, I'm sorry. I don't care what time it is. I got to get out of here. There's, you know, I just need to think about baseball and uh, Oprah and, you know, things. Just calm down, take a shower. Like, okay, bye, right? I just got to get out of there, right? Because that would, that would arouse or awaken desire for me. And I could not pray a prayer of thanksgiving around Natalie for that situation. So just, again, in full disclosure. So Natalie's going to listen to this podcast later on. And she's just going to be like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe you said masturbation and then talked about our dating life. Okay, whatever. Okay. 
So in the way we communicate to one another, in the way we communicate to one another, in the way you talk, right? So just think about it. You're like, listen, girl, I love you. You spur me on. You're a Proverbs 31 woman. <laughs> and then you start quoting lines from boys to men, right? And although we've come to the end of the road, still I can't let go. It's unnatural. You belong to me. I belong to you, right? And you're sending her gifs or gifts, however you say that, of boys to men in all white, just doing this thing right here, flowing shirt. And you're like, you're like, what? No, it's just I'm trying to talk to you about these things, right? I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to tell you I love you, right? Hey, if the words you use, fellas, if the words you use, ladies, right? Where, you know, if the pictures you send to one another, even in a committed Christian dating relationship, does it arouse or awaken sexual uh, things before it's time? Could you pray a, a prayer of thankfulness, right? So you get out the phone and you're like, I know I'm wearing my bikini today. I just thought I'd send you a bikini pic. And you're like, I could go here, but I'm going to go way up here, right? <laughs> like lean down a little bit and do this thing. It's just my boyfriend. He just, you know, right, right. Can you be thankful in that moment? Is it going to stir or awaken desire in him? So that's in a relationship. Now, I'm going to talk about the third category, in marriage. And here's the reason why I want to talk about marriage uh, in this respect. Um, I want to talk about marriage because I think someday many of you in this room will be in this camp. And I think many of you in this room may assume incorrectly that once you get married, that somehow all this stuff goes away. Like the end justifies the means, and once I get there, it's a clean slate, and there's no more struggle with sexual immorality. And let me just tell you, that is uh, completely wrong. Because you get married, <coughs> and now all of these things become temptations for you in every other relationship you have, and you're married, right? Your coworkers at work, your friends you're in a life group with, people you interact with, all the same things happen. And here's the one way that they begin to most manifest themselves. Under stressful seasons. In marriage, <clears throat> when you are experiencing stress, you're going to find, probably, that you are tempted to uh, engage in purposeless flirting, uh, to struggle with external images, uh, to be in close physical contact with other people, and to communicate in inappropriate ways with lots of people around you. And, and it's shocking. And I want you to know this because, I want you to be aware of this uh, for this reason. Some of you are married here today, and so you got to just kind of a check on that issue. <clears throat> Some of you uh, are not married here today, but maybe you will be one day. And I want you to know that the things you're learning right now in your singleness, they will be immensely more helpful to you in marriage in very strange ways. And so I'll just kind of give you an example. See, uh, a lot of people think, oh, I got married, and she's the love of my life, and so now I only see her. I don't see any other woman ever, right? Or he's the best-looking man. He's the, he's the prince to my princess, and so I never see any other guy. It's kind of the, the, the kissing cousin of, like, I don't see race. I just don't see race at all. I'm like, really? People are different colors and come from different areas. I don't, right? It's an issue of observation. Uh, y'all are all smart people in this room. As I'm looking around, <coughs> many smart people, I'm choking right now because I've talked too long and God's going, shut it down, Doug. Um, <coughs> so y'all are smart people and um, you observe things. When you walk into a room, you observe. You go, okay, there are lights and there are things like that. And guess what? You're going to observe, thank you, Isaac. You're going to observe pretty people 
wherever you are, attractive people, wherever you are, you're going to observe coworkers flirting with you. You're going to observe uh, your boss hitting on you. You're going to observe neighbors, people in your life group, other Christians starting to make sexual advances to you. And guess what? It doesn't matter if you have a ring on the finger. And so uh, you may think, oh, no, we have a good marriage. Things are fine. We're good to go. We have sex like four times a week. Like we're, we're covering all the bases. Everything's great. And then all of a sudden you get into a stressful period where you don't have sex four times a week and you've got four kids at home or five kids at home or two kids at home or one kid at home and everybody's sick and he looks gross and your kids are just, ah, and you're just stressed out of your mind. And so you go to the gym and there's the guy at the gym who always walks next to you and suddenly you strike up a conversation. And guess what? Now you're having to think about, ooh, I got to ask these questions in a whole new way. Is my talking with this guy I'm treadmilling next to is it arousing inappropriate sexual thoughts? Is this guy I'm talking to, <clears throat> is this something I can do while praying a prayer of thanksgiving to God? See, in marriage, stress brings all this stuff all over again. And guess what? It happens to you every week of your life for the rest of your life. And so the things we're talking about in terms of sexual, sexuality and renewal, these are not just good things for you to learn while you're in a single period. They're good things for you to learn, period. And so I want to invite you to consider these things, what it looks like for each of us to take our sexuality and to make it submitted to God so that he can do something amazing in it and can renew us. Let me tell you one last story here and give you a quote, and then we're going to think about things, and Jason's going to sing a song. Um, there's this interesting stat that still holds true, and the sociologists of sexuality and sexual behaviorists and uh, psychologists of sexuality they tend to do these massive longitudinal kind of multi-demographic uh, studies, and they ask this one question, who's having the best sex, right? Because they want to know, like, who are the people that report that they have the best sex lives, the most satisfying sex lives? And every time they do this, they basically get some form of the same answer. It's mid-50-year-old monogamous religious couples. Now, think about that. You would think it would be like 20-year-olds who are like, I'm wildly experimental in my sexuality. I have tons of partners. I tender and all the time and just massive hookups. Well, those 20-year-olds probably experience these really crazy uh, experiences of sexuality, but they also experience just tremendous seasons of loneliness where they just, for whatever reason, they're stressed. They can't get to it, whatever. Right? So it's not 20-year-olds. It's not the 30-year-olds who maybe, you know, are entering the marriage, they're having kids and whatever, or they just got a divorce and so they're back on the market. It's, it's not the 40-year-olds who are just trying to plow through people as much as they can. It's the 50-year-olds who are married, who are monogamous, who are religious, right? And so I just, again, just to give you a clear visual, our former president, Barack Obama, and his wife, Michelle, probably one of the best sex lives in America. I haven't talked to him recently about this. He does follow me on Twitter, but we haven't talked about this. But I mean, that's your picture of like the most satisfied people. Uh, I, I used to joke formerly with a political thing. It's like Mitt Romney, right? You look at Mitt Romney. I mean, he's well into his past his 50s and his 60s now, but he probably has an incredible sex life. Like Mitt Romney is very good looking. His wife is very good looking. They have like 20 kids. Now you know why, right? Because they have this incredible, I mean, they would probably be the kind of people who report just a really satisfying sex life. And it makes sense. Many of these people who are in their mid-50s, who are monogamous, who have these incredible, uh, who'd report incredible sex lives, here's what their week in and week out life is like. Number one, they've probably, especially if they're Christian, and religious oftentimes is code for Christian, 
they've probably experienced some form of renewal in their sexuality. They have probably arrived at a point where they understand that sex is not about what I can get, but it's about self-sacrifice. It's about pleasing my partner. It's about trying to serve her needs or serve his needs the best that I can. And because of this, um, they experience something that's really unique. They, they experience a different kind of sex than the world. And um, I'll sum it up with this quote here, and then I want to get us to think about it. Um, oftentimes, especially people your age, uh, when y'all, when young adults, when they enter into sexuality, um, you know, they'll have like a sexual, uh, I don't know how to describe it, experience, right? And then you just see this in the movies all the time. They like, one person like looks over, they all have perfect hair and like, you know, great lighting on their skin and the makeup's perfect, even though they just had sex and right, they're just, and, and they just do this thing and like either the guy or the girl goes, was it good for you? And right, the conversation is, was this good or bad? Like, I need a performance review right now. Like, could you fill out this form and let me know so that I could go back and think about my performance and try to update it for next time, right? They just have these moments. And oftentimes, that's the kind of language. Was sex good for you or not? And then when girls get with their girls and guys get with their girls, like, how was it last night, right? Was it good? Was it good, right? And the girl's like, was it good? Was it good? And, and these are the conversations that everybody has. And so, again, we've learned to think about this sex in terms of good or bad in these very binary moral categories. But here's what is profound if Paul is correct about human sexuality and the renewal process. And here's the quote from my good friend Kyle Dunn. Sex, Christian sex, is never evaluated as good or bad when it's done out of love. Sex is never understood in terms of good or bad if it's done out of love. And not to get too personal, I don't know that Natalie and I have ever talked about later and go, was that good for you last night? I don't know that that's ever been a category we've had. Why? Because our, the desire of our family is to be the 55-year-old couple who just has the best sex life ever, right? That's what we're shooting for. In fact, we want to be the 80-year-old couple that's just still like, you have no idea, right? That's us. Like, like, come on, baby, get your walker and let's just get over here. Like, see, we can get over here. Let's help, have the nurse help me into bed, help you into bed, then leave the room, and then that's how it's going to happen, right? That's the desire of our heart. Why? Because for us, sex is not about just something we do when we're young. It's not something about us. Sex is something God has given to us, and we want to practice it in the best way possible by trying to serve one another, especially in our sexuality. And so here's the question I want us to think about today. I want us to take 60 seconds as Jason and the band start playing. What is God saying to me about my sexuality and renewal? What's God saying to me about sexuality and my renewal? Maybe you're not a Christian, you're here today, and what he's wanting to nudge you on a little bit is, hey, hearing what Christianity could be like for you is this maybe a day to take another step towards Jesus? Maybe you're someone with a, a pretty significant sexual past and Jesus is saying the next step for you is to start thinking about the ways that you believe in lies and beginning to step over in the side of Jesus and putting on truth. Maybe you're someone who has just kept sexuality really far from yourself and Jesus is inviting you to open up and consider uh, letting him renew that part of your life. Or maybe it's something else. What's God saying to you about sexuality and renewal? Take 60 seconds to think about that and then Jason and the band are gonna lead us in the song.